Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week we will be reading and discussing chapters 5 and 6 of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is part of the Diga Nikaya of the Pali Canon. The title translates roughly to Discourse on the Final Nirvana, and it documents the final days of Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha. Last time we read and discussed chapters 3 and 4 of the Sutta, where the Buddha makes his final rounds traveling to preach the Dharma, where he officially gives up his will to live, and where he eats his last meal. This week, in chapters 5 and 6, you will see the final sermon, the final passing away of Shakyamuni Buddha, and the ensuing funerary and memorial rituals. We hope you enjoy. Then the Blessed One addressed the Venerable Ananda, saying, Come, Ananda, let us cross to the further bank of the Hiranavati and go to the Malas Sala Grove in the vicinity of Kusinara. Ananda replied, So be it, Lord. And the Blessed One, together with a large company of bhikkhus, went to the further bank of the river Hiranavati to the Sala Grove of the Malas in the vicinity of Kusinara. And there he spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Please, Ananda, prepare for me a couch between the twin Sala trees, with the head to the north. I am weary, Ananda, and want to lie down. So be it, Lord, replied Ananda, and the Venerable Ananda did as the Blessed One asked him to do. Then the Blessed One lay down on his right side, in the lion's posture, resting one foot upon the other, and so disposed himself, mindfully and clearly comprehending. At that time, the twin solitaries broke out in full bloom, though it was not the season of flowering. And the blossoms rained upon the body of the Tathagata, and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. And celestial mandarava flowers and heavenly sandalwood powder from the sky rained down upon the body of the Tathagata, and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. And the sound of heavenly voices and heavenly instruments made music in the air out of reverence for the Tathagata. And the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Ananda, the twin sala trees are in full bloom, though it is not the season of flowering. And the blossoms rain upon the body of the Tathagata, and drop and scatter and are strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. And celestial coral flowers and heavenly sandalwood powder from the sky rain upon the body of the Tathagata, and drop and scatter and are strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata. And the sound of heavenly voices and heavenly instruments makes music in the air out of reverence for the Tathagata. Yet it is not thus, Ananda, that the Tathagata is respected, venerated, esteemed, worshipped, and honored in the highest degree. But, Ananda, whatever bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, layman or laywoman, abides by the Dharma, lives uprightly in the Dharma, walks in the way of the Dharma, it is by such a one that the Tathagata is respected, venerated, esteemed, worshipped, and honored in the highest degree. Therefore, Ananda, thus should you train yourselves. We shall abide by the Dharma, live uprightly in the Dharma, walk in the way of the Dharma. At that time, the Venerable Upavana was standing before the Blessed One, fanning him. And the Blessed One rebuked him, saying, Move aside, Bhikkhu, do not stand in front of me. And to the Venerable Ananda came the thought, This Venerable Upavana has been in attendance on the Blessed One for a long time, closely associating with him and serving him. Yet now, right at the end, the Blessed One rebukes him. What now could be the reason? What the cause for the Blessed One to rebuke the Venerable Upavana, saying, Move aside, Bhikkhu, do not stand in front of me. And the Venerable Ananda told his thought to the Blessed One. The Blessed One said, Throughout the tenfold world system, Ananda, there are hardly any of the deities that have not gathered together to look upon the Tathagata. For a distance of twelve yajanas around the Sala Grove of the Malas in the vicinity of Kushinara, there is not a spot that could be pricked with the tip of a hair that is not filled with powerful deities. And those deities, Ananda, are complaining. From afar have we come to look upon the Tathagata. For rare in this world is the arising of Tathagatas, Arhats, fully enlightened ones. 
And this day, in the last watch of the night, the Tathagata's Perinibbana will come about. But this bhikkhu of great powers has placed himself right in front of the Blessed One, concealing him, so that now, at the very end, we are prevented from looking upon him. Thus, Ananda, the deities complain. Of what kind of deities, Lord, is the Blessed One aware? asked the Venerable Ananda. There are deities, Ananda, in space and on earth, who are earthly-minded. With disheveled hair they weep, with uplifted arms they weep. Flinging themselves on the ground, they roll from side to side, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Perinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Perinibbana. Too soon will the eye of the world vanish from sight. But those deities who are freed from passion, mindful and comprehending, reflect in this way. Impermanent are all compounded beings. How could this be otherwise? The Venerable Ananda addressed the Blessed One, saying, Formerly, Lord, on leaving their quarters after the rains, the bhikkhus would set forth to see the Tathagata, and to us there was the gain and benefit of receiving and associating with those very revered bhikkhus who came to have audience with the Blessed One and to wait upon him. But, Lord, after the Blessed One has gone, we shall no longer have that gain and benefit. There are four places, Ananda, that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. What are the four? Here the Tathagata was born. This, Ananda, is a place that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. Here the Tathagata became fully enlightened in unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. This, Ananda, is a place that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. Here the Tathagata set rolling the unexcelled wheel of the Dharma. This, Ananda, is a place that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. Here the Tathagata passed away into a state of Nibbana in which no element of clinging remains. This, Ananda, is a place that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. These, Ananda, are the four places that a pious person should visit and look upon with feelings of reverence. And truly there will come to these places, Ananda, pious bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, laymen and laywomen, reflecting, Here the Tathagata was born. Here the Tathagata became fully enlightened and unsurpassed supreme enlightenment. Here the Tathagata set rolling the unexcelled wheel of the Dharma. Here the Tathagata passed away into the state of Nibbana in which no element of clinging remains. And whoever, Ananda, should die on such a pilgrimage with his heart established in faith at the breaking up of the body after death will be reborn in a realm of heavenly happiness. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, How, Lord, should we conduct ourselves toward women? Do not see them, Ananda. But, Lord, if we do see them, replied Ananda. Do not speak, Ananda. But, Lord, if they should speak to us. Then, Ananda, you should establish mindfulness. Then the Venerable Ananda said, how should we act, Lord, respecting the body of the Tathagata? Do not hinder yourselves, Ananda, to honor the body of the Tathagata. Rather, you should strive, Ananda, and be zealous on your own behalf, for your own good. Unflinchingly, ardently, and resolutely, you should apply yourselves to your own good. For there are, Ananda, wise nobles and wise Brahmins and wise householders who are devoted to the Tathagata, and it is they who will render the honor to the body of the Tathagata. Then the Venerable Ananda said, But how, Lord, should they act respecting the body of the Tathagata? After the same manner, Ananda, as towards the body of a universal monarch. But how, Lord, do they act respecting the body of a universal monarch? The body of a universal monarch, Ananda, is first wrapped round with new linen, and then with teased cotton wool, so it is done up to five hundred layers of linen and five hundred of cotton wool. When that is done, the body of the universal monarch is placed in an iron oil vessel, which is enclosed in another iron vessel. A funeral pyre is built of all kinds of perfumed woods, and so the body of the universal monarch is burned and at a crossroads a stupa is raised for the universal monarch. So it is done, Ananda, with the body of a universal monarch. And even, Ananda, as with the body of a universal monarch, so it should be done with the body of the Tathagata, and at a crossroads also a stupa should be raised for the Tathagata. 
And whosoever shall bring to that place garlands, or incense, or sandal paste, or pay reverence, and whose mind becomes calm there, it will be to his well-being and happiness for a long time. There are four persons, Ananda, who are worthy of a stupa. Who are those four? A tatagata, an arhat, a fully enlightened one, is worthy of a stupa. So also is a pracheka buddha, and a disciple of the tatagata, and a universal monarch. And why, Ananda, is a tatagata, an arhat, a fully enlightened one, worthy of a stupa? Because, Ananda, at the thought, this is the stupa of the blessed one, arhat, fully enlightened one, the hearts of many people will be calmed and made happy, and so calmed and with their minds established in faith therein, at the breaking up of the body, after death, they will be reborn in a realm of heavenly happiness. And so also at the thought, this is the stupa of that Pracheka Buddha, or this is the stupa of a disciple of that Tathagata, Arhat, fully enlightened one, or this is the stupa of that righteous monarch who ruled according to the Dharma. The hearts of many people are calmed and made happy, and so calmed and with their minds established in faith therein, at the breaking up of the body after death, they will be reborn in a realm of heavenly happiness. And it is because of this Ananda that these four persons are worthy of a stupa. Then the venerable Ananda went into the vihara and leaned against the doorpost and wept. I am still but a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. And the blessed one spoke to the bhikkhus, saying, Where bhikkhus is Ananda? The venerable Ananda, Lord, has gone into the vihara, and there stands leaning against the doorpost and weeping. I am still but a learner, and have still to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the blessed one asked a certain bhikkhu to bring the venerable Ananda to him, saying, Go, bhikkhu, and say to Ananda, Friend Ananda, the master calls you. So be it, Lord. And that bhikkhu went and spoke to the venerable Ananda, as the blessed one had asked him to do. And the venerable Ananda went to the blessed one, bowed down to him, and sat down on one side. Then the blessed one spoke to the venerable Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved there must be change, separation, and severance? Of that which is born, come into being, compounded, and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now, for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness in deed, word, and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart, and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free from the taints. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Bhikkhus, the Blessed Ones, Arhats, fully enlightened ones, of times past, also had excellent and devoted attendant bhikkhus, such as I have in Ananda. And so also, bhikkhus, will the Blessed Ones, Arhats, fully enlightened ones, of times to come. Capable and judicious is Ananda, bhikkhus, for he knows the proper time for bhikkhus to have audience with the Tathagata, and the time for bhikkhunis, the time for laymen and for laywomen, the time for kings and for ministers of state, the time for teachers of other sects and for their followers. In Ananda bhikkhus are to be found four rare and superlative qualities. What are the four? If bhikkhus, a company of bhikkhus, should go to see Ananda, they become joyful on seeing him. And if he then speaks to them of the Dharma, they are made joyful by his discourse. And when he becomes silent, they are disappointed. So it is also when bhikkhunis, laymen, or laywomen go to see Ananda, they become joyful on seeing him, and if he then speaks to them of the Dharma, they are made joyful by his discourse, and when he becomes silent, they are disappointed. In a universal monarch, bhikkhus, are to be found four rare and superlative qualities. What are these four? If bhikkhus, a company of nobles, should go to see the universal monarch, they become joyful on seeing him, and if he then speaks, they are made joyful by his talk. 
and when he becomes silent, they are disappointed. So it is also when a company of Brahmins, of householders, or of ascetics goes to see a universal monarch. And in just the same way, bhikkhus, in Ananda are to be found these four rare and superlative qualities. When this had been said, the Venerable Ananda spoke to the Blessed One, saying, Let it not be, Lord, that the Blessed One should pass away in this mean place, this uncivilized township in the midst of a jungle, a mere outpost of the province. There are great cities, Lord, such as Kampa, Rajagriha, Savati, Saketa, Kosambi, and Benares. Let the Blessed One have his final passing away in one of those. For in those cities dwell many wealthy nobles and Brahmins and householders who are devotees of the Tathagata, and they will render due honor to the remains of the Tathagata. Do not say that, Ananda. Do not say, this mean place, this uncivilized township in the midst of the jungle, a mere outpost of the province. In times long past, Ananda, there was a king by the name of Mahasudasana, who was a universal monarch, a king of righteousness, a conqueror of the four quarters of the earth, whose realm was established in security, and who was endowed with the seven jewels. And that king, Mahasudasana, Ananda, had his royal residence here at Kushinara, which was then called Kusavati, and it extended twelve yojanas from east to west, and seven from north to south. And mighty, Ananda, was Kusavati, the capital, prosperous and well-populated, much frequented by people, and abundantly provided with food. Just as the royal residence of the deities, Alakamanda, is mighty, prosperous, and well-populated, much frequented by deities, and abundantly provided with food, so was the royal capital of Kusavati. Kusavati, Ananda, resounded unceasingly day and night with ten sounds, the trumpeting of elephants, the neighing of horses, the rattling of chariots, the beating of drums and tabors, music and song, cheers, the clapping of hands, and cries of, Eat, drink, and be merry. Go now, Ananda, to Kushinara, and announce to the Malas. Today, Vasettas, in the last watch of the night, the Tathagata's Perinibbana will take place. Approach, O Vasettas, draw near. Do not be remorseful later at the thought. In our township it was that the Tathagata's Perinibbana took place, but we failed to see him in the end. So be it, Lord. And the Venerable Ananda prepared himself, and, taking bowl and robe, went with a companion to Kushinara. Now, at that time, the Malas had gathered in the council hall for some public business. And the Venerable Ananda approached them and announced, Today, Vasetas, in the last watch of the night, the Tathagata's Perinibbana will take place. Approach, Vasetas, draw near. Do not be remorseful later at the thought. In our township it was that the Tathagata's Perinibbana took place, but we failed to see him in the end. When they heard the Venerable Ananda speak these words, the Malas, with their sons, their wives, and the wives of their sons, were sorely grieved, grieved at heart and afflicted, and some, with their hair all disheveled, with arms uplifting in despair, wept. Flinging themselves on the ground, they rolled from side to side, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Perinibbana, too soon has the Happy One come to his Perinibbana, too soon will the eye of this world vanish from sight. And thus afflicted and filled with grief, the Malas, with their sons, their wives, and the wives of their sons, went to the Sala Grove, the recreation park of the Malas, to the place where the Venerable Ananda was. And the thought arose in the Venerable Ananda, If I were to allow the Malas of Kushinara to pay reverence to the Blessed One one by one, the night will have given place to dawn before they are all presented to him. Therefore, let me divide them up according to clan, each family in a group, and so present them to the Blessed One thus. The Mala of such and such a name, Lord, with his wives and children, his attendants and his friends, pays homage at the feet of the Blessed One. And the Venerable Ananda divided the Malas up according to clan, each family in a group, and presented them to the Blessed One. So it was that the Venerable Ananda caused the Malas of Kushinara to be presented to the Blessed One by clans, each family in a group, even in the first watch of the night.
Now at that time, a wandering ascetic named Subada was dwelling in Kushinara, and Subada, the wandering ascetic, heard it said, Today in the third watch of the night, the Parinibbana of the ascetic, Gotama, will take place. And the thought arose in him, I have heard it said by old and venerable wandering ascetics, teachers of teachers, that the arising of Tathagatas, Arhats, fully enlightened ones, is rare in the world. Yet this very day, in the last watch of the night, the Parinibbana of the ascetic Gotama will take place. Now there is in me a doubt, but to this extent I have faith in the ascetic Gotama, that he could so teach me the Dharma as to remove that doubt. Then the wandering ascetic Subada went to the Sala Grove, the recreation park of the Malas, and drew near to the Venerable Ananda, and told the Venerable Ananda his thought. And he spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Friend Ananda, it would be good if I could be allowed into the presence of the ascetic Gotama. But the Venerable Ananda answered him, saying, Enough, friend Subada, do not trouble the Tathagata, the Blessed One is weary. Yet a second and a third time the wandering ascetic Subada made his request, and a second and a third time the Venerable Ananda refused him. And the Blessed One heard the talk between them, and he called the Venerable Ananda and said, Stop, Ananda, do not refuse Subada. Subada, Ananda, may be allowed into the presence of the Tathagata. For whatever he will ask me, he will ask for the sake of knowledge, and not as an offense. And the answer I give him, that he will readily understand. Thereupon the Venerable Ananda said to the wandering ascetic Subada, Go then, friend Subada, the Blessed One gives you leave. Then the wandering ascetic Subada approached the Blessed One and saluted him courteously. And having exchanged with him pleasant and civil greetings, the wandering ascetic Subada seated himself at one side and addressed the Blessed One, saying, There are, Venerable Gotama, ascetics and Brahmins who are heads of great companies of disciples, who have large retinues, who are leaders of schools, well-known and renowned, and held in high esteem by the multitude, such teachers as Purana Kashapa, Makali Gosala, Ajita Kasakambali, Pakuda Kachayana, Sanjaya Balataputta, Niganta Nataputta, have all of these attained realization, as each of them would have it believed, or has none of them, or is it that some have attained realization and others not? Enough, Subhadda, replied the Blessed One. Let it be as it may, whether all of them have attained realization, as each of them would have it believed, or whether none of them has, or whether some of them have attained realization and others not. I will teach you the Dharma, Subhadda. Listen and heed it well, and I will speak. So be it, Lord, replied Subhadda. And the Blessed One spoke, saying, in whatsoever dharma and discipline, Subhadda, there is not found the noble eightfold path, neither is there found a true ascetic of the first, second, third, or fourth degree of saintliness. But in whatsoever dharma and discipline there is found the noble eightfold path, there is found a true ascetic of the first, second, third, and fourth degrees of saintliness. Now in this dharma and discipline, Subhadda, is found the noble eightfold path, and in it alone are also found true ascetics of the first, second, third, and fourth degrees of saintliness. Devoid of true ascetics are the systems of other teachers. But if, Subhadda, the bhikkhus live righteously, the world will not be destitute of arhats. In age but twenty-nine was I, Subhadda, when I renounced the world to seek the good. Fifty-one years have passed since then, Subhadda, and in all that time a wanderer have I been, in the domain of virtue and of truth. And except therein there is no saint of the first degree. And there is none of the second degree, nor of the third degree, nor of the fourth degree of saintliness. Devoid of true ascetics are the systems of other teachers. But if, Subhadda, the bhikkhus live righteously, the world will not be destitute of arhats. When this was said, the wandering ascetic Subhadda spoke to the Blessed One, saying, Excellent, O Lord, most excellent, O Lord. It is as if, Lord, one were to set upright what had been overthrown, or to reveal what had been hidden, or to show the path to one who had gone astray, or to light a lamp in the darkness so that those with eyes might see. 
Even so has the Blessed One set forth the Dharma in many ways. And so, O Lord, I take refuge in the Blessed One, the Dharma, and the community of bhikkhus. May I receive from the Blessed One admission to the order, and also the higher ordination. Whoever, Subhadda, having been formerly a follower of another creed, wishes to receive admission and higher ordination in this Dharma and discipline, remains on probation for a period of four months. At the end of those four months, if the bhikkhus are satisfied with him, they grant him admission and higher ordination as a bhikkhu. Yet in this matter I recognize differences of personalities. If, O Lord, whoever, having been formerly a follower of another creed, wishes to receive admission and higher ordination in this dharma and discipline, remains on probation for a period of four months, at the end of those four months, if the bhikkhus are satisfied with him, they grant him admission and higher ordination as a bhikkhu, then I will remain on probation for a period of four years. And at the end of those four years, if the bhikkhus are satisfied with me, let them grant me admission and higher ordination as a bhikkhu. But the Blessed One called the Venerable Ananda and said to him, Ananda, let Subhadda be given admission into the order. And the Venerable Ananda replied, So be it, Lord. Then the wandering ascetic Subhadda said to the Venerable Ananda, It is a gain to you, friend Ananda, a blessing, that in the presence of the Master himself you have received the sprinkling of ordination as a disciple. So it came about that the wandering ascetic Subhadda, in the presence of the Blessed One, received admission and higher ordination. And from the time of his ordination, the Venerable Subhadda remained alone, secluded, heedful, ardent, and resolute. And before long he attained the goal for which a worthy man goes forth rightly from home to homelessness, the supreme goal of the holy life, and having by himself realized it with higher knowledge, he dwelt therein. He knew, destroyed his birth, the higher life is fulfilled, nothing more is to be done, and beyond this life nothing more remains. And the Venerable Subhadda became yet another among the Arhats, and he was the last disciple converted by the Blessed One himself. Now the Blessed One spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, It may be, Ananda, that to some among you the thought will come, Ended is the word of the Master. We have a Master no longer, but it should not, Ananda, be so considered. For that which I have proclaimed and made known as the Dharma and the Discipline, that shall be your Master when I am gone. And Ananda, whereas now the bhikkhus address one another as friend, let it not be so when I am gone. The senior bhikkhus, Ananda, may address the junior ones by their name, their family name, or as friend, but the junior bhikkhus should address the senior ones as Venerable Sir, or Your Reverence. If it is desired, Ananda, the Sangha may, when I am gone, abolish the lesser and minor rules. Ananda, when I am gone, let the higher penalty be imposed upon the bhikkhu Channa. But what, Lord, is the higher penalty? asked Ananda. The bhikkhu Channa, Ananda, may say what he will, but the bhikkhus should neither converse with him, nor exhort him, nor admonish him. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, It may be, bhikkhus, that one of you is in doubt or perplexity as to the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, the path or the practice. Then question, bhikkhus. Do not be given to remorse later on with the thought, The Master was with us face to face, yet face to face we failed to ask him. But when this was said, the bhikkhus were silent, and yet a second and a third time, the Blessed One said to them, It may be, bhikkhus, that one of you is in doubt or perplexity as to the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, the path, or the practice. Then question, bhikkhus. Do not be given to remorse later on with the thought, The Master was with us face to face, yet face to face we failed to ask him. And for a second and a third time, the bhikkhus were silent. Then the Blessed One said to them, It may be, bhikkhus, out of respect for the Master, that you ask no questions. Then bhikkhus, let friend communicate it to friend. Yet still the bhikkhus were silent. And the Venerable Ananda spoke to the Blessed One, saying, Marvelous it is, O Lord, most wonderful it is. 
This faith I have in the community of bhikkhus, that not even one bhikkhu is in doubt or perplexity as to the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, the path, or the practice. Out of faith, Ananda, you speak thus. But here, Ananda, the Tathagata knows for certain that among this community of bhikkhus, there is not even one bhikkhu who is in doubt or perplexity as to the Buddha, the Dharma, or the Sangha, the path or the practice. For Ananda, among these 500 bhikkhus, even the lowest is a stream enterer, secure from downfall, assured and bound for enlightenment. And the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Behold now, bhikkhus, I exhort you. All compounded things are subject to vanish. Strive with earnestness. This was the last word of the Tathagata. Then the Blessed One entered the first jhana. Rising from the first jhana, he entered the second jhana. Rising from the second jhana, he entered the third jhana. Rising from the third jhana, he entered the fourth jhana. And rising out of the fourth jhana, he entered the sphere of infinite space. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite space, he entered the sphere of infinite consciousness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite consciousness, he entered the sphere of nothingness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of nothingness, he entered the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. And rising out of the attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, he attained to the cessation of perception and feeling. And the Venerable Ananda spoke to the Venerable Anuruddha, saying, Venerable Anuruddha, the Blessed One has passed away. No, friend Ananda, the Blessed One has not passed away. He has entered the state of the cessation of perception and feeling. Then the Blessed One, rising from the cessation of perception and feeling, entered the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, he entered the sphere of nothingness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of nothingness, he entered the sphere of infinite consciousness. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite consciousness, he entered the sphere of infinite space. Rising from the attainment of the sphere of infinite space, he entered the fourth jhana. Rising from the fourth jhana, he entered the third jhana. Rising from the third jhana, he entered the second jhana. Rising from the second jhana, he entered the first jhana. Rising from the first jhana, he entered the second jhana. Rising from the second jhana, he entered the third jhana. Rising from the third jhana, he entered the fourth jhana. And rising from the fourth jhana, the Blessed One immediately passed away. And when the Blessed One had passed away, simultaneously with his Parinibbana, there came a tremendous earthquake, dreadful and astounding, and the thunders rolled across the heavens. And when the Blessed One had passed away, simultaneously with his Parinibbana, Brahma Sahampati spoke the stanza, All must depart, all beings that have life, must shed their compound forms, yea, even one, a master such as he, a peerless being, power and wisdom, the enlightened one, has passed away. And when the Blessed One had passed away, simultaneously with his Parinibbana, Sakka, the king of the gods, spoke this stanza, Transients are all compounded things, subject to arise and vanish. Having come into existence, they pass away. Good is the peace when they forever cease. And when the Blessed One had passed away, simultaneously with his Parinibbana, the Venerable Anuruddha spoke this stanza. Then there was terror, and the hair stood up, when he, the all-accomplished one, the Buddha, passed away. Then, when the Blessed One had passed away, some bhikkhus, not yet freed from passion, lifted up their arms and wept. And some, flinging themselves on the ground, rolled from side to side and wept, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the eye of the world vanished from sight. But the bhikkhus, who were freed from passion, mindful and clearly comprehending, reflected in this way, Impermanent are all compounded things. How could this be otherwise? And the Venerable Anuruddha addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Enough, friends. Do not grieve. Do not lament. 
For has not the Blessed One declared that, with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance? Of that which is born, come into being, compounded and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? The deities, friends, are aggrieved. But, venerable sir, of what deities is the venerable Anuruddha aware? asked Ananda. There are deities, friend Ananda, in space and on earth, who are earthly-minded. With disheveled hair they weep, with uplifted arms they weep. Flinging themselves on the ground, they roll from side to side, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Eye of the World vanished from sight. But those deities who are freed from passion, mindful and clearly comprehending, reflect in this way. Impermanent are all compounded things. How could this be otherwise? Now the Venerable Anuruddha and the Venerable Ananda spent the rest of the night in talking on the Dharma. Then the Venerable Anuruddha spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, Go now, friend Ananda, to Kushinara, and announce to the Malas, the Blessed One, Vasetas, has passed away. Do now as seems fitting to you. So be it, Venerable Sir, replied Ananda. And the Venerable Ananda prepared himself in the forenoon, and taking bowl and robe, went with a companion to Kushinara. At that time, the Malas of Kushinara had gathered in the council hall to consider that very matter. And the Venerable Ananda approached them and announced, The Blessed One, Vasetas, has passed away. Do now as seems fitting to you. And when they heard the Venerable Ananda speak these words, the Malas, with their sons, their wives, and the wives of their sons, were sorely grieved, grieved at heart, and afflicted, and some, with their hair all disheveled, with arms upraised in despair, wept, flinging themselves on the ground. They rolled from side to side, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Parinibbana. Too soon has the Eye of the World vanished from sight. Then the Malas of Kushinara gave orders to their men, saying, Gather now all the perfumes, flower garlands, and musicians, even all that are in Kushinara. And the Malas, with the perfumes, the flower garlands, and the musicians, and with five hundred sets of clothing, went to the Sala Grove, the recreation park of the Malas, and approached the body of the Blessed One. And having approached, they paid homage to the body of the Blessed One with dance, song, music, flower garlands, and perfume, and erecting canopies and pavilions, they spent the day showing respect, honor, and veneration to the body of the Blessed One. And then the thought came to them, Now the day is too far spent for us to cremate the body of the Blessed One. Tomorrow we will do it. And for the second day, and a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth day, they paid homage to the body of the Blessed One, with song, dance, music, flower garlands, and perfume, and, erecting canopies and pavilions, they spent the day showing respect, honor, and veneration to the body of the Blessed One. But on the seventh day, the thought came to them, we have paid homage to the body of the Blessed One with dance, song, music, flower garlands, and perfume, and have shown respect, honor, and veneration. Let us now carry the body of the Blessed One southward to the southern part of the town and beyond, and let us there cremate the body of the Blessed One south of the town. And eight malas of the foremost families, bathed from the crown of their heads and wearing new clothes, with the thought, We will lift up the body of the Blessed One, tried to do so, but they could not. Then the mala spoke to the Venerable Anuruddha, saying, what is the cause, Venerable Anuruddha, what is the reason that these eight malas of the foremost families, bathed from the crown of their heads and wearing new clothes, with the thought, We will lift up the body of the Blessed One, try to do so, but cannot? You, Vasetas, have one purpose, the deities have another, replied Anuruddha. Then what, Venerable Sir, is the purpose of the deities? asked the malas. Your purpose, Vasetas, is this. We have paid homage to the body of the Blessed One with dance, song, music, flower garlands, and perfume, and have shown respect, honor, and veneration. 
Let us now carry the body of the Blessed One southward to the southern part of the town and beyond, and let us there cremate the body of the Blessed One south of the town. But the purpose of the deities, Vasetas, is this. We have paid homage to the body of the Blessed One with heavenly dance, song, music, flower garlands, and perfume, and have shown respect, honor, and veneration. Let us now carry the body of the Blessed One northward to the northern part of the town. And having carried it through the northern gate, let us go through the center of the town, and then eastward to the east of the town. And having passed through the east gate, let us carry it to the Chitiya of the Malas, Makuta Bandana, and there let us cremate the body of the Blessed One. As the deities wish, venerable sir, so let it be, said the Malas. Thereupon, the whole of Kushinara, even to the dust heaps and rubbish heaps, became covered knee-deep in Mandarava flowers, and homage was paid to the body of the Blessed One by the deities as well as the Malas of Kushinara. With dance, song, music, flower garlands, and perfume, both divine and human, respect, honor, and veneration were shown. And they carried the body of the Blessed One northward to the northern part of the town, and having carried it through the northern gate, they went through the center of the town, and then eastward to the east of the town. And having passed through the east gate, they carried the body of the Blessed One to the Sutiya of the Malas, Makuta Bandana, and there laid it down. Then the Malas of Kushinara spoke to the Venerable Ananda, saying, How should we act, Venerable Ananda, respecting the body of the Tathagata? After the same manner, Vasetas, as towards the body of a universal monarch, replied Ananda. But how, Venerable Ananda, do they act respecting the body of a universal monarch? asked the Malas. The body of a universal monarch, Vasetas, is first wrapped round with new linen, and then with teased cotton wool. And again it is wrapped round with new linen, and again teased cotton wool. So it is done up to five hundred layers of linen and five hundred of cotton wool. When that is done, the body of the universal monarch is placed in an iron oil vessel, which is enclosed in another iron vessel, and a funeral pyre is built of all kinds of perfumed woods, and so the body of the universal monarch is burned. And at a crossroads, a stupa is raised for the universal monarch. So it is done, Vasetas, with the body of the universal monarch. And even, Vasetas, as with the body of a universal monarch, so it should be done with the body of a Tathagata. And at a crossroads also, a stupa should be raised for the Tathagata. And whoever shall bring to that place garlands, or incense, or sandalwood paste, or pay reverence, and whose mind becomes calm there, it will be to his well-being and happiness for a long time. Then the Malas gave orders to their men, saying, Gather now all the teased cotton wool of the Malas. And the Malas of Kushinara wrapped the body of the Blessed One round with new linen, and then with teased cotton wool, and then again they wrapped it round with new linen, and again with teased cotton wool, and so it was done up to five hundred layers of linen and five hundred of cotton wool. When that was done, they placed the body of the Blessed One in an iron oil vessel, which was enclosed in another iron vessel, and they built a funeral pyre of all kinds of perfumed woods, and upon it they laid the body of the Blessed One. Now at that time the Venerable Mahakashapa was journeying from Pava to Kushinara together with a large company of five hundred bhikkhus, and on the way the Venerable Mahakashapa went aside from the highway and sat down at the foot of a tree. And a certain Ajivaka came by, on his way to Pava, and he had taken a Mandarava flower from Kushinara. And the Venerable Mahakashapa saw the Ajivaka coming from a distance, and as he drew close he spoke to him, saying, Do you know, friend, anything of our master? Yes, friend, I know, replied the Ajivaka. It is now seven days since the ascetic Gotama has passed away. From there I have brought this Mandarava flower. Thereupon, some bhikkhus, not yet freed from passion, lifted up their arms and wept, and some, flinging themselves on the ground, rolled from side to side and wept, lamenting, Too soon has the Blessed One come to his Perinibbana. Too soon has the Happy One come to his Perinibbana. Too soon has the Eye of the World vanished from sight. 
Now at that time, one Subada, who had renounced only in his old age, was seated in the assembly, and he addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Enough, friends, do not grieve, do not lament. We are well rid of that great ascetic. Too long, friends, have we been oppressed by his saying, This is fitting for you, that is not fitting for you. Now we shall be able to do as we wish, and what we do not wish, that we shall not do. But the venerable Mahakashapa addressed the bhikkhus, saying, Enough, friends, do not grieve, do not lament. For has not the Blessed One declared that, with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance? Of that which is born, come into being, compounded, and subject to decay, how can one say, May it not come to dissolution? Now at that time, the four malas of the foremost families, bathed from the crown of their heads and wearing new clothes, with the thought, We will set alight the Blessed One's pyre, tried to do so, but they could not. And the mala spoke to the venerable Anuruddha, saying, What is the cause, venerable Anuruddha? What is the reason that these four malas of the foremost families bathed from the crown of their heads and wearing new clothes with the thought, We will set a light to the Blessed One's pyre, try to do so, but cannot? You, Vasetas, have one purpose, the deities have another, replied the venerable Anuruddha. Then what, venerable sir, is the purpose of the deities? asked the malas. The purpose of the deities, Vasetas, is this. The Venerable Mahakashapa is on his way from Pava to Kushinara together with a large company of 500 bhikkhus. Let not the Blessed One's pyre be set alight until the Venerable Mahakashapa has paid homage at the feet of the Blessed One. As the deities wish, Venerable Sir, so let it be, replied the Malas. And the Venerable Mahakashapa approached the pyre of the Blessed One at the Satya of the Malas, Makuta Bandana, in Kushinara. And he arranged his upper robe on one shoulder, and with his clasped hands raised in salutation, he walked three times around the pyre, keeping his right side toward the Blessed One's body, and he paid homage at the feet of the Blessed One, and even so did the five hundred bhikkhus. And when homage had been paid by the venerable Mahakashapa and the five hundred bhikkhus, the pyre of the Blessed One burst into flame by itself. And it came about that when the body of the Blessed One had been burned, no ashes or particles were to be seen of what had been skin, tissue, flesh, sinews, and fluid. Only bones remained. Just as when ghee or oil is burned, it leaves no particles or ashes behind. Even so, when the body of the Blessed One has been burned, no ashes or particles were to be seen of what had been skin, tissue, flesh, sinews, and fluid. Only bones remained. And of the five hundred linen wrappings, only two were not consumed, the innermost and the outermost. And when the body of the Blessed One had been burned, water rained down from heaven and extinguished the pyre of the Blessed One, and from the sala trees, water came forth, and the malas of Kushinara brought water scented with many kinds of perfumes, and they too extinguished the pyre of the Blessed One. And the malas of Kushinara laid the relics of the Blessed One in their council hall, and surrounded them with a latticework of spears, and encircled them with a fence of bows. And there for seven days they paid homage to the relics of the Blessed One with dance, song, flower garlands, music, and perfume, and showed respect, honor, and veneration to the relics of the Blessed One. Then the king of Magadha, Ajatasattu, son of the Vaidehi queen, came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away, and he sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and I am too. I am worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. I will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the Lachavis of Vesali came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away, and they sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, the Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and we are too. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the Shakyas of Kapilavatu came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away. 
and they sent a message to the Malas, saying, The Blessed One was the greatest of our clan. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the bullies of Alakapa came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away. And they sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and we are too. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the Kolis of Ramagama came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away. And they sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of a warrior caste, and we are too. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the Vetadipa Brahmin came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away. And he sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and I am a Brahmin. I am worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. I will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. And the Malas of Pava came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away, and they sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and we are too. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. But when they heard these words, the Malas of Kushinara addressed the assembly, saying, The Blessed One has passed away in our township. We shall not part with any portion of the relics of the Blessed One. Then the Brahmin Dona spoke to the assembly, saying, One word from me I beg you, sirs, to hear. Our Buddha taught us never to forbear. Unseemly would it be should strife arise, and war and bloodshed, over the custody of his remains, who was the best of men. Let us all, sirs, in friendliness agree to share eight portions, so that far and wide stupas may rise, and seeing them, mankind, faith in the all-enlightened one, will find. So be it, Brahmin, divide the relics into eight equal portions yourself. And the Brahmin, Dona, said to the assembly, So be it, sirs. And he divided justly into eight equal portions the relics of the Blessed One. And having done so, he addressed the assembly, saying, Let this urn, sirs, be given to me. Over this urn I will erect a stupa, and in its honor I will hold a festival. And the urn was given to the Brahmin Dona. Then the Moriyas of Pipilavana came to know that at Kushinara the Blessed One had passed away, and they sent a message to the Malas of Kushinara, saying, The Blessed One was of the warrior caste, and we are too. We are worthy to receive a portion of the relics of the Blessed One. We will erect a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One and hold a festival in their honor. There is no portion of the relics of the Blessed One remaining. The relics of the Blessed One have been divided but take from here the ashes. And they took from there the ashes. And the king of Magadha, Ajatasattu, son of the Vaidehi queen, erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Rajagriha, and in their honor held a festival. The Lachavis of Vesali erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Vesali, and in their honor held a festival. The Shakyas of Kapilavatu erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Kapilavatu, and in their honor held a festival. The Bullies of Alakapa erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Alakapa, and in their honor held a festival. The Kolis of Ramagama erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Ramagama, and in their honor held a festival. The Vetadipa Brahmin erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Vetadipa, and in their honor held a festival. The Malas of Pava erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Pava, and in their honor held a festival. The Malas of Kushinara erected a stupa over the relics of the Blessed One at Kushinara, and in their honor held a festival. The Brahmin Dona erected a stupa over the urn, and in its honor held a festival. And the Moriyas of Pipilavana erected a stupa over the ashes at Pipilavana, and in their honor held a festival. And so it came about that there were eight stupas for the relics, a ninth for the urn, 
and a tenth for the ashes. And thus it was in the days of old. Eight portions there were of the relics of him, the all-seeing one, the greatest of men. Seven in Jambudipa are honored, and one in Ramagama by kings of the Naga race. One tooth is honored in the Tavatimsa heaven, one in the realm of Kalinga, and one by the Naga kings. Through their brightness this bountiful earth with its most excellent gifts is endowed. For thus the relics of the all-seeing one are best honored by those who are worthy of honor, by gods and Nagas, and lords of men, yea, by the highest of mankind. Pay homage with clasped hands, for hard indeed it is, through hundreds of ages, to meet with an all-enlightened one. Okay, so that was chapters 5 and 6, the final two chapters of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Docs, what did you think? This one leaves me with questions that we'll get to as we read through it. Like, yeah, there's just several things going on here where I just need, I'm not sure how to feel about it. So I guess we should just go through it. Yeah, I think we should. That would be a good idea. So do you have any questions about uh, chapter five in particular? So let's just go through it piece by piece. So with the translation we're using, the section is Last Place of Rest, which is part five at Kusinara. And yeah, so the big thing here is that the Buddha asks for a couch between some trees and then while laying there, the tree sprout and all kinds of things like that. That's right. This is a very famous scene that's replicated in imagery all throughout East and Southeast and South Asia. They like to represent the Buddha in imagery or in statuary as laying on his right side, and there's flowers falling from the sky, and there's a bunch of people gathered around to hear him or see him for one last time. And so that's a very poignant and very famous scene from the sutra. One phrase that's used here that I didn't see a proper explanation for. Then the Blessed One lay down on his right side in the lion's posture, resting one foot upon the other, and so disposed himself mindfully and clearly comprehending. Uh, lion's posture, what? So anytime that a bodhisattva or a Buddha or somebody of great import in a sutra does something, it seems like they apply this lion's x to it right i remember earlier in the sutta somebody said something to the buddha i think it was ananda saying something to the buddha and he said this was a lion's roar right the lion's roar he said it with such confidence and was so wrong right that that was sariputra you're right it was sariputra the lion's roar of sariputra that time it was a little bit satirical because the buddha ended up telling him that he was wrong Right, But in this case, the lion's pose is how he would imagine the death of royalty, Right, how the Buddha would be looking regal and looking important and looking beautiful in his final repose. So the lion's roar or the lion's whatever, in many cases, signifies that some great teaching is about to be expounded, and it also signifies that something of great import, either doctrinally or ritually has happened or has been said. And it also represents, of course, the regality and the royalty of the person who is in that position or who did that thing or what have you. The lion is always kind of closely related with the concept of this regality. 
Okay. So, and the lion's posture could be read as like in a regal pose, perhaps. Yeah, but it's very specifically okay. attributed to the Buddha and to his disciples. All right. So next we get to the grief of the gods. And so we have somebody coming up to fan the Buddha and he's like, hey, move aside because the gods want to watch me in my final moments and you're blocking their path. Yeah, this is an interesting little scene. It's a little argument, a little scuffle that happens right before the Buddha's final moments, right? So as you said, his name is Upavana. The venerable Upavana was standing in front of the Buddha fanning him. And the Buddha said, get out of the way. And, you know, Ananda kind of steps in and says, like, wait a minute. You know, he's been like closely serving you for a very long time. Why are you rebuking him? Why are you sending him away? And the Buddha said that this guy was in the way of the gods. And in this, the Buddha lists off all of the gods who wanted to see him, who wanted to see him flash into Parinibbana, wanted to see him vanish from the world without any sort of remainder. And this is in particular because those deities have earned their place as deities or gods because they have attained some sort of good karma or some sort of awakening that other people didn't have. But also, he thinks that they have that they will be freed or have been freed from passion attachment and so on and have realized impermanence and so they get to look directly upon him whereas people who are maybe grieving the buddha's death out of attachment out of desire they are actually you might think in the back rows of people in the back rows of the crowd so it's got the different levels of deities involved in this as well, the ones who are grieving, but then, but those deities who are freed from passion, mindful and comprehending, reflect in this way, impermanent are all compounded things. How could this be otherwise? So, this phrase is repeated many times in this segment of the sutta, showing that, you know, there's basically two levels of people who are grieving or. Rather, there are people who are grieving, and then there are people who are like, well, yeah, I mean, that's what's supposed to happen. Yeah, and this is true between gods and humans, right? So he wanted the person to get out of his way, to get out of the god's way, because he wanted to make sure everybody saw him. But primarily, he wanted to show these deities, I think, who were freed from attachment, his final passing. But behind those people spiritually speaking, on a lower level of the totem pole, behind those gods, there are gods who are rolling around and throwing their arms up and weeping and flinging themselves around. And this is the, the same is true of people. There are people there who are doing the same thing. They're throwing their arms up, they're weeping, they're flopping around. But there's also highly realized, spiritually advanced disciples of the Buddha who are not doing any of that. They're like, yeah, impermanent are all compounded things and how could this be otherwise so then we get to ananda's concern which leads directly to this four places of pilgrimage so are these places noted locations that people can go to today the four places of pilgrimage i know that at least where the tasakata fully enlightened 
reached enlightenment. That's the Bodhi tree, right? Yeah, yeah. These are all four places. We actually brought these up during Rebecca's guest episode. These are four places that are in northeast India and Nepal. And they are, to this day, very popular pilgrimage sites for worldwide Buddhist communities. So the first one is the place where the Buddha was born in Mumbini Woods. There's a stupa there. There's plenty of infrastructure to get around there because it's a very large community of Buddhists that goes to these pilgrimages. Then there's also the site of his enlightenment. They claim that the Bodhi tree, the very same Bodhi tree that he reached enlightenment under is still planted there and it's still kept alive and is still venerated and can be seen. This is dubious, but the truth is there is a very old tree there. And so maybe if it's not 2,500 years old, it's still very old. Um, the site of his first sermon is also a place where you can go. I believe this is where Rebecca went whenever she was in India. This is Deer Park near Sarnath. And then the fourth site is the site of his final nirvana. And this is where they are now. This is Kushinara or Kushinagara. These places all have a couple of different names because they um, are being transliterated or translated between Pali and Sanskrit. So Kushinara is very likely the Pali name for it. And Kushinagara is very likely the Sanskrit name for it. But I could have those reversed. But the idea is that these are probably the four most important pilgrimage sites in all of Buddhism. And they're fascinating because they are the only main ones that we really think of, right? Muslims have Mecca and Christians have Jerusalem, right? And we don't often think about Buddhists having anywhere, but actually they do. They have these four different sites where the Buddha lived and achieved all these different things in his life, his final nirvana or his first enlightenment or where he was born and so on and so forth. And there's an entire tradition of pilgrimage in Buddhism, an entire set of doctrines and customs and things like that revolving around pilgrimage that are very fascinating because they're sometimes very different in important ways from other pilgrimages and different religions, but other times they're also very similar in some very resonant ways. And I think that it's one of the most interesting parts about how Buddhism is practiced and lived because it's something that's very distant from the Western imagination of Buddhism, and it's also something that is very unique within Buddhism. Yeah, if I could travel again, I would love to go see some of these places. I haven't been to any of these four, but I've heard from people like Rebecca who have been to some of them that they are really gorgeous. Of course, they're very crowded, and they might be a little bit touristy at times, but at the end of the day, they're still very important and very, very transformative places. So back to the sutta, uh, after we do all of this, kind of out of nowhere, it's labeled as line 23 in our translation. Uh, they have a short conversation about how to conduct ourselves towards women. And it's just, no, don't, if you can. Yeah, this is actually a non sequitur in the text. It's a complete yeah. non sequitur. And there are a lot of theories about why it's in there. But the primary theory that is out there that most scholars have landed on is that this is actually a part of the text that was inserted at a later date and thus really doesn't have any bearing on the rest of the sutta. And it might have been added specifically to the version of the text that survived for some specific small-scale reason, right? We've talked before about how 
Indian texts are simply not preserved as well in history as any other East Asian texts, just because the technology for paper wasn't as good and the environment is less amenable to the preservation of texts. But we think that this was just someone's own personal insertion in the version that we have. And that's why it's there. That's why it doesn't make any sense. That's why it's a complete non sequitur. And that's why it never gets revisited again. I could very easily believe that. And then we go to how to respect the body of the Tathagata and a long-winded way of eventually getting to basically taking the relics and building a stupa with them. Yeah, exactly. This death ritual that's laid out here is really the template for almost all other death rituals that we see in Buddhism throughout East Asia and Southeast and South Asia as well. So the procedure of wrapping the body in fresh linen and fresh cotton wool up to a thousand layers and putting the body into an iron vessel with oil and then putting that into another vessel and then burning it and then collecting and distributing the relics and then erecting a stupa over those relics at a crossroads, this is very, very, very typical and widespread in Buddhism in some form or the other. The wrapping in 1,000 layers of fabric is not as widely practiced because that's incredibly difficult. And it seems like it would also be really expensive. It's very expensive. They'll come close to it with these very important people in Buddhism who pass away, or they might even get all 1,000, but it's only for very important people. We think that this can be achieved with one ream of fabric. So even though it says to wrap them up in 1,000 layers or 1,000 fabrics, the translation doesn't make a lot of sense. So what you can do is you can take one ream of fabric and wrap somebody up just with that one piece rather than 1,000 separate pieces or 500 separate pieces. So that's how it's interpreted in some places versus others. But like I said, because it's expensive and difficult, most people don't actually even aim for 1,000. It's more of a symbolic thing. They interpret it as being symbolic of wrapping somebody up a lot. And then, of course, doing a cremation ritual and then collecting the relics. The relics are of incredible import. These are some of the most important parts of the death ritual as compared to any other religion. Whenever somebody dies in Buddhism, if they are very spiritually advanced, the idea or the thinking is that they will leave behind very precious and very numerous relics or remains. There's parts of the body that don't burn, such as like parts of bones or whatever. And the idea is that if you're very enlightened, then you'll have more of those that are not touched by the fire and those remains can be collected and they ought to be respected and venerated. And this whole thing gets turned up to 11 because of Chinese ancestor worship practices whenever Buddhism travels to China. But at the end of the day, across India, Southeast Asia, China, Korea, Japan, other places, all of this same emphasis on the relics and the remains is still very much held true. The ashes are done away with, but the solid pieces that are still in the crematorium after the flames have gone down. Those pieces are said to be very, very, very spiritually important, and they deserve to be venerated. They have a stupa erected at them, and you should do rituals and recitations and so on. And 
the relics and the remains have their whole entire own trajectory of development in Buddhism between Theravada and Mahayana. And we've talked about bits and pieces of it before, and we'll continue to talk about it over time. But you should just know that this is one of the most important developments in Buddhism specifically, is the treatment of the relics as it relates to the development of older Buddhism into Mahayana Buddhism. It's a case study for how we deal with the passing away of the Buddha himself. I don't suppose any of the stupas that were constructed out of the Buddha's remains are known today? Like, are those still up? It's a tough question. So stupas are very frequently built and rebuilt. This is especially true in East Asia. This doctrine of impermanence and the sensitivity to impermanence causes stupas to be made out of less than permanent materials in some cases, <laughs> um, especially whenever they're not for like Shakyamuni himself. So it's tough to say, but there are definitely stupas out there that we suspect were very likely stupas erected over the Buddha's remains. For example, the ones at these four pilgrimage sites are said to very most likely be housing the relics of the Buddha. However, the regular human adult male has 32 teeth, right? That's very common knowledge. Well, across all of the Buddhist world, there are over 60 temples that claim to have the Buddha's teeth as remains, right? So somebody has to be lying or somebody has to be incorrect, right? So that's kind of, that's actually a funny story that my very first Buddhism professor told me is that there are about 60 stupas, 60 temples that claim to have specifically the teeth. And for one thing, we can't be certain that the teeth didn't actually burn up in the cremation. But for another thing, for 60 people would be saying they have a tooth of the Buddha. Or sometimes in some cases, they say they have two or three teeth. That's not really adding up. He should have only had 32 teeth, we think. And so for 60 people to say that is probably a stretch. But that being the case, it's also impossible to figure out if these relics are real or authentic or not, because one, it's insensitive to Buddhists to grab their most worshipped and most holy object that they have in their stupa and say, let me do some scientific testing on this. Right. And it's also actually scientifically close to impossible to figure out if those relics belong to Shakyamuni himself. It's not like we have a dental record of him. It's not like we have any other DNA to help with this. So it's kind of something we just take them at their word for. I mean, we can't really say one way or the other <laughs> if it's his teeth or not. Okay, so it's not as much a case of these relics have been lost over time as much as we can't really authenticate the relics in any reliable way. Exactly. And it, it gets even more complicated whenever there are certain monks, certain monastics, and certain important people in the Buddhist ecumenical structure who are said to be reincarnations of Shakyamuni, of Avalokiteshvara, of these other great teachers in the history of Buddhism. Some people say they're reincarnations of Shariputra or Manjushri or Mahakashapa or so on and so forth. And so if we were to look at their relics, are we looking to see if that person is Mahakashapa or if they are the reincarnation of Mahakashapa? So the fact of people claiming to be reincarnations and people having 
these different titles and different levels of importance in the structure of Indian and Chinese and Japanese Buddhism makes it really difficult to know what actually we're looking at with these relics and remains. And so very often, they are just paid respect to as if they are just a Buddha writ large, right? So one of the important developments there is that a temple may have a claim or a story to go along with those relics, some history as to how they ended up there. But the relics themselves have their own hagiography. Hagiography is biography, except having to do with like holy people or holy stuff. And it's often extremely embellished and dramatized and exaggerated for obvious reasons. It's trying to afford spiritual import to whatever it is that we're talking about. So we find that the stories of how these temples acquired these things or stories about these things themselves are often a little bit dramatic and a little bit embellished and maybe not entirely historical. So that held aside, the way that the typical Buddhist engages with these relics is they actually just pay respect to them as if they were a Buddha. And that's the end of it, right? They may pay respect to that Buddha based on the name that the temple has applied to those relics through whatever claim they have. But at the end of the day, the ritual that you do for the remains of Shakyamuni Buddha are no different than the rituals you would do for the remains of the reincarnation of Mahakashapa or the reincarnation of Amida or something like that. And it's also within the scope of other things we've discussed within Buddhism to say that you know, even if these aren't literally the teeth in Shakyamuni Buddha's, these weren't necessarily hurt his specifically, but if they were somebody who has a reincarnation, wouldn't through non-duality and non-self and all of these other concepts that we've discussed elsewhere kind of qualify them as the Buddhist teeth anyway? Exactly right. And that's kind of where the trajectory of relic worship goes, is that there's a non-duality between the physical relics of the Buddha, his hair, his teeth, his bones, and so on. You know, if we include those elements, there's hundreds and hundreds of temples that claim to have something like that. Someone has his hair, someone has his phalanges, someone has his teeth, someone has... It's wild. Sometimes they have relics that are not even physical implements that we have in our body, right? Sometimes they'll have something that's made of gold or made of glass, and they'll say that this came from the Buddha's body. And of course, it makes sense when we think that they are trying to elevate the Buddha to a level of spiritual awakening, that his relics are jewels like that. But it's not something we realistically think happens to anybody on earth, right? Whenever you burn somebody in cremation, maybe their gold teeth would survive, maybe, if the fire was not very hot. I would think the gold might melt, <laughs> but ultimately at the end of it, you know, most people don't leave behind jewels and treasure whenever they pass away. All of that aside, there becomes a non-duality between these physical remains and the remains of his teachings, right? And that's why Mahayana is frequently called the cult of the book because stupas have been frequently erected over copies of sutras because the sutras are given the exact same amount of respect that his hair and teeth and phalanges and bones are given, right? So the idea is that there's a non-dual relationship between the remains of the body of the Buddha and the teaching that he left behind, the teaching that he gave us. All right. 
So let's move to the next part of the sutta, which is Ananda. So we are looking at line 32 in our translation, Ananda's grief, and then after that, praise of Ananda. So this is a moment where Ananda gets the spotlight as, you know, a, somebody who's deeply grieving the passing of his teacher. Yeah, this is a rather sweet and emotional and close and intimate moment that we see between Ananda and Shakyamuni here, right? So Ananda is grieving because he believes that he still has so much to learn and his teacher, his beloved teacher who he's been with for years and years and years is passing away. And the Buddha actually like doesn't directly allay his grief. He doesn't say to Ananda, it's going to be okay. He doesn't you know, pat him on the shoulder and say, you know, you'll see me in the next life. What he actually does is he, he turns to the entire audience and he starts praising Ananda. He says Ananda has these four great qualities. He's happy on seeing them. He's happy when he speaks of the Dharma. He's made joyful by his discourse on the Dharma. And people are disappointed when he's silent. And so he's telling the audience, you should be like Ananda. And in that regard, he's elevating Ananda to the level of ideal that Ananda doesn't believe that he's achieved. And so it's kind of an indirect way of allaying Ananda's grief, an indirect way of telling Ananda, it's going to be all right. You've got it. You don't need to learn anymore from me, etc. Yeah, it's good to see Ananda. Like He's been kind of... The way that Ananda is grieving here while understandable from the personal standpoint, is also very counter to how an enlightened being would respond to this death. Like, within the text here, it's saying that there are people who are free enough from their passions to be like, yeah, of course, this is what happens. So it's good to see Ananda getting some credit after that, because he is kind of... I'm not sure what the right word is. Uh, he's not being treated as bad as Sariputra is in other, you know, Mahayana texts that make him the clown. Like, it's not quite that level. But also, he's kind of the one who's messing up in, in this sutta. He's messing up in a way that allows the Buddha to present some major quality or some correction to the way an average person would uh, think or respond to a situation in here. And so here towards the end being like, oh, by the way, he's messing up here, but he's still somebody to emulate is a good point, I guess. I like Ananda, and it seems like, like this is a good point for him. Yeah, I like Ananda too, and I think that you're right that he's not being made a clown like Shariputra is, but he is an audience stand-in, I think, in that people who are lay people, who are unenlightened, they may feel the way that Ananda has been feeling at certain points throughout this entire story, and Ananda is then being employed to express those feelings and to give those feelings discourse directly with the Buddha right? I feel like we all relate with Ananda in the sense that if we were in his position and somebody that we'd been following around, somebody who opened the door for us to reach enlightenment and then nirvana without remainder was passing away, that would be tragic. Even if you have ostensibly 
freed yourself from all passion and attachments. I mean, you have to, I think that it's unavoidable that you feel something about that and that you notice that in some way. And Ananda is in particular in a close position with the Buddha to where that would make sense for him. Ananda has been the Buddha's attendant and is said to be like the rememberer, the recorder of the sutras. And he's the one who follows and listens the most closely to all of the discourse. And so you think that the relationship that they have is that Ananda knows the Buddha's mind as much as any normal, unenlightened person possibly could, because he's been there. He's been, you know, the ear to the horse's mouth for his whole life, pretty much, right? I mean, they're, they're old people now. Ananda in this stage is pushing like 60 because he came to work with the Buddha whenever the Buddha was young and whenever he was young, even younger. And they've kind of grown up together. They've spent their lives together, right? And so Ananda is, is missing a friend as much as he's missing a teacher, as, as much as he's missing a Buddha, someone who is so universally important for turning the Dharma wheel, right? So I sympathize with Ananda a lot throughout this text, and I'm glad to see as well that the Buddha, even though he's not saying it's okay to cry and throw your arms up and roll around on the ground, he is saying, look how great Ananda is. You should all try to be like Ananda. Without saying you should be sad and dramatic and attached, but saying, you know, you should be a steward of the Dharma just like Ananda has been. So after that, we get the past glory of Kusinara. This is line 41 in our text. So what's going on here exactly? Well, I get... So, again, like just right after we've praised him, Ananda goes right back to being kind of an audience surrogate and having a strong opinion about the stature, I guess, the importance of the place where the Buddha is dying. Yeah, so this is an interesting plug into the frame narrative, the war with the Vajis, the war that King Bimbisara wants to wage on, on them. And the malas play a part in this as well. So you might think of this as being similar to the bits of history that we might pull out of the Christian Bible or the Hebrew Bible, even though it's doctrinally biased and it's pushing a specific religious message. There are moments in those texts that we can point to and say, like, this is one of our only versions of the history that we get here. And I think that that's partially true with regards to the politics and the history of northeastern India during this time period. So King Bimbisara, who you should be familiar with, by the way, he comes up in the Contemplation Sutra, which we've read and discussed, where his wife Vaidehi is imprisoned by their son Ajatasatru, who also wants to kill Bimbisara, and the Pure Land Sutra thing happens. He's trying to wage a war on the Vajis, and they're involved in the malas that Ananda goes to get. They're involved with that somehow. And so part of this discussion that they're talking about with Kushinara is to say, like, this is a place of significant political import. This is a royal place. It just doesn't look like it now. And that's important for all the historical reasons that I'm not an expert on and that we don't really concern ourselves with that much in this show. But 
the other thing that he's trying to emphasize here is that with the enlightened eye, someone can look upon a place that's fallen into destitution like this, and they can see the glorious history that it has and why it would be a good place to choose to die. And so there's both layers of that kind of functioning here. They had to return to the frame narrative somehow, right? And I think that that's what they're doing here. But they're also saying, if you look at a place and you are omniscient and you know the overall trajectory of the lifespan of all dharmas, then you can see that even though Kushinara looks kind of crappy now, in the past, it was actually a very, very, very regal and royal and opulent and fantastic place. And next we get to the Lamentation of the Malas. So forgive me if I've missed this in the time between reading these different parts of the sutta. Uh, what? Are, who are the Malas? I'm never actually completely clear on this either. I can't remember all of the political intrigue that goes on in these texts, but it was important that Ananda went to go get the Malas from whatever they were doing to come and witness the passing away of Shakyamuni. I don't know why that was significant, and I don't know what side of this war with the Vajis they're on. Either they're on King Bimbisara's side and they want to wage the war, or they're not on King Bimbisara's side and they don't want to. For more clarity on the political landscape, we might have to go back and look at the first part that we read where this all gets set up. And people who are listening might want to do that as well. But we should note that ultimately, at the end of it all, the political thing doesn't actually get really resolved that well. <laughs> so in a frame narrative where there's like a political landscape and then a huge spiritual doctrinal journey, and then a conclusion of that journey, you would expect, okay, the political landscape is going to wrap up as well. Either King Bimbisara is going to go to war with the Vajis or not. The Buddha feels like King Bimbisara should not go to war with the Vajis because they they have all those qualities that we talked about in the first part, right? They treat women well, they treat elderly people well, they take care of their shrines, all that sort of stuff. I think that King Bimbisara doesn't go to war with them, but I don't know what the Mala's involvement is here. I think that this was just kind of a little bit of biblical history, like we get in the Bible sometimes, if that makes sense. Okay, so basically in order to parse the sutta, I should think of the Malas as a group of people that are important in the region. Yes, yes. And they are also in other sutras that we will and have read, um, but they just play a lesser role. They're kind of, they're characters, they're people, they're important. But they are background characters to the story of Shakyamuni Buddha's life. Usually they set up plot, but they don't very often drive plot themselves, right? So some people actually think that they are thematic inclusions, right? So some people think that historians who were also part of the writing and compilation of the sutras after the death of Shakyamuni looked back and saw the political history between the Malas and the Vajis and all of this stuff happening in the kingdom of Magadha. And some people think they actually applied that to the Buddha's sermons themselves to make them earthly, to make them be applicable to something that the readers of the time period would actually be aware of. Imagine if 
we replaced the political intrigue with the Malas and the Vajis and everybody else and replaced that instead with maybe like medieval European history, the War of the Roses, or if we replaced it with American history or something like that. I think that kind of inclusion would be something that's relevant to people who would read it, even if it's not even 100% historically accurate, right? I mean, it's accurate in this case because this is where the Buddha lived and these people were there. But I think that it's partially like a fusion to try and make this be real and credible. Makes sense. All right. So next we get the last convert, an ascetic named Subhada. So Subhada comes in and Ananda is telling him to buzz off because the Buddha is tired. But the Buddha hears this, calls him in, and then gets one last convert. Yes, he's the final convert, and he is very significant because he is the final convert of Buddhism, is a convert from another tradition. So he followed another teacher and then came into Buddhism. And the reason why that's significant is because it's symbolic of what might have to happen after the Buddha has died. Once the Buddha has died, it's really difficult to say that there is a Buddhist tradition in the sense that there was a tradition associated with Subhadda's former teacher. Subhadda's teacher is alive and teaching and walking around and still has people following him around. After the Buddha dies, his people can't follow him around anymore, and the growth of the community will rely mostly on conversion from other traditions. And so, the fact that he's afforded this much import in the text represents what's going to happen after Shakyamuni's gone, and it's symbolic of how Buddhists ought to treat conversion after Shakyamuni is no longer with us. Makes sense. So, a big symbol of here's how we're going to continue afterward. Exactly right. As we've seen before, that's what a lot of this sutta is pointed at, is what ought we to do after Shakyamuni is gone. And then we get to part six, the passing away. So, the Blessed One's final exhortation. We're getting to the point where he finally dies... And like his last words were, according to this, Behold now, bhikkhus, I exhort you, all compounded things are subject to vanish, strive with earnestness. That's right. Yeah, so his final word, as he's passing away and reaching nirvana with no remainder, is impermanence. Keep going. Keep training. Keep learning. Keep practicing. And that is going to function very strongly in Theravada traditions, because this is the Pali version that we've been talking about. But the Sanskrit version, which is the Mahayana Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, which we haven't read yet, is going to put different words in the Buddha's mouth for his last words. And so keep that in mind um, and how those are different for when we read that text. I will note that when we get there. All right. And so then how the Blessed One passed into Nibbana. Basically, this is going him like the moment of death going through the different jhanic stakes. That's right. Yeah. So he bounces up and down through the different jhanas, through these different meditative realizations that we've talked about before. And one reason why we think that's included is because it's representing an ideal for how someone ought to die in Buddhism. The ideal is that you ought to die meditatively if you can in Buddhism. That'll certainly help with regards to where you go afterwards and stuff like that. It's setting a precedent that we see for death in Buddhism overall, which is that how you die 
matters. How you are when you die determines how you die and where you go or what happens to you. And the Buddha is the one who sets that ideal with this um, bouncing up and down in all of the different jhanas. Yeah, we've talked before about how one's death is like the your your state of mind at death is important in previous episodes. So this is the source of that makes sense. And so next we get to the world's echo where a bunch of basically a bunch of important people are saying their first words after the Buddha's death. Yeah, everybody wants to weigh in. And because this is such an important moment, everybody has something to say about it. And they're also kind of dealing with and saying all of this in the midst of like the response of the world and nature to the passing away of Shakyamuni, right? We've talked about how anytime anything important happens, there's thunder and there's earthquakes and there's, there's animals that are crying out and there's all of this crazy natural disaster stuff happening. And in the midst of all of that, um, these different important people get to say, you know, this is impermanence. We should all try and strive this way. Or they're saying this nirvana is like the blowing out of a flame or everything that happened whenever he died was so terrifying. When he passed away, everybody's hair stood up and it was so scary. You know, they all have their different opinions about this. And so then we get to the venerable Anuruddha. Anuruddha, that's right, yeah. So Anuruddha is basically saying, hey, we need to keep going. Yeah, he's saying, you know, we have to stick together, right? He's gone, but we should not shatter because of this. We actually should remember the teaching, the thing he said. How may something not come to dissolution if impermanence is to be true, right? So he's got the function of kind of being like, it's okay, you know, he's passed away and we can be sad about this, but we shouldn't let this freak us out too much and we shouldn't worry about the future of the Sangha too much because change and separation and severance is the way of things. The Buddha said so himself. And so it's okay to be aggrieved. There's even gods that are aggrieved, but stick together. All right. And then we get to, let's see, homage of the remains. Yeah. So this deals with the rituals that are carried out after the remains are collected, right? So there are seven days of memorial services over the body, and then there is cremation of the body. Then you take the body back and forth around the town several times, and then you cremate at a stupa. And then you pay seven days of respect to the relics, right? So they do this entire circuit starting here, right? Starting now. This is very, very important because this is something that is done at temple complexes, but is not really done in towns anymore. So when somebody passes away in Buddhism, they will carry the remains around the temple complex in East Asia, but they won't do this stuff taking through the town and all that. Um, when somebody important passes away, I'm sure they might do something like that, but that's not really doctrinally enforced, if that makes sense. They'll just take them around the temple because of this circumambulation and this making sure everybody sees and gets to pay their respects and so on. 
It also makes sense that a more important figure would get a more elaborate funeral, where here we have the gods themselves imposing an order to how the procession should play out. Like, at one point, it's talking about how the people, the mortals are going, hey, let's carry him out through the south. But the gods go, no, we want you to go through the north and then do a loop and do a whole lot more. Exactly, right. And the idea is that, you know, the gods know more about it, right? The gods are somehow more advanced about it. And so they they know what must be done geomantically, if that makes sense, with the space and with the body. And of very significant import, you'll note is that all of these services are put on pause until Mahakashapa arrives. So what they do is that whenever the Buddha dies, after everybody is done saying their part about it, Ananda kind of teaches the Dharma that was just recently taught to him by the Buddha, and they are passing time until Mahakashapa comes back. And so the idea there is that some people think that by the whole entire funerary ritual being put on pause to wait for him, they think that Mahakashapa was understood to be the successor to Shakyamuni in, in being the leader of the Sangha. And that's very significant because you'll note from previous episodes that Mahakashapa is the first patriarch of Zen or Chan Buddhism. Ah, right. I do. That's where I knew that name from. Okay. He's the one who, in the flower sermon, right, the Buddha doesn't say anything. He just holds up a flower and looks at everybody's faces. And the only person who gets it out of his entire audience is right. Mahakashapa, who smiles. And that's how the Buddha says, you, you've you understood this mind-to-mind transmission of the Dharma. And so it's often thought that Mahakashapa was understood to be, at the very least, like the practical leader, right? Maybe he's not a second Buddha, like Maitreya, right? But maybe he's like a very practical leader who will at least be like the administrator of the Sangha for the rest of his life. You know, and that's why they wait for him. We have one line here that is interesting in its lack of opposition. So there are apparently two folks named Subada here. Uh, this is line 28 on our translation. Now at that time, one Subada, who had renounced only in his old age, was seated in the assembly. And he addressed the bhikkhu saying, Enough, friends, do not grieve, do not lament. We are well rid of that great ascetic. Too long, friends, have we been oppressed by his saying, This is fitting for you, this is not fitting for you. Now we shall be able to do as we wish, and what we do not wish, that we shall not do. So, he's just in here saying, Oh, hey, he's he's gone, we can do what we want now, and that seems incorrect? Yeah, so... It's very interesting that he says this and no one pushes back against him, right? He's kind of yeah. saying like the principle's gone away and we can go have recess now. <laughs> um, it doesn't make a lot of sense and nobody really addresses it. I don't know why it's included, actually. I can't really make sense of why someone would say that, um, knowing what the Buddha is teaching at all. I mean, obviously Subhadra's not been around for a lot of it, but what he was around for was all compounded things are subject to vanish, strive with earnestness. At the very least, he was there for that. So I don't know what that's about. Interesting. I would love to get the context on that, but it's 
probably a fact of history that we're never going to be able to recover based on what we've talked about in previous episodes. Exactly right. All right, so there's more meddling of the deities and the funeral procession, and then we get to a partition of the relics. And so this is another one that I, based on what we've said so far, this is another bit of tying things into the political landscape of the time. That's right. Yeah. So there's a lot of fighting and arguing over the relics. Everybody, every party, the hosts at Kushinara, the Malas, who were thought to be special, the Vajis, who were thought to be special, everybody thought they deserved relics. And nobody could really agree on who got what and who got how many and all that sort of thing. So, I mean, Kusinara was saying that he died here, so we're keeping them all. So the hosts of the place, Kushinara, they wanted all of it. The king of Magadha, Ajatasattu, he wanted relics because his kingdom had Rajagriha, where the Buddha preached a lot. So everybody wanted some. And this guy named Dona is kind of put in charge of partitioning them. And naturally, he kind of keeps the most for himself. He kind of makes out like a thief, right? And it's interesting how that works. <laughs> it's interesting why he's allowed to do that. So we're seeing a lot of references to the caste system here, which maybe I'm not understanding correctly, but I would feel like the Buddha was not a fan of this caste system, was he? He was not a fan in some places, but he was kind of neutral in others, right? Okay. In those places where you see like the Moriyas or the Shakyas or something like that, when they refer to those, those are actually clan names. Or when they say Brahmin, that's a reference to the caste system, right? Dona yeah. is a Brahmin. And he's an interesting one because obviously the Brahmanical traditions were pretty, pretty suspicious, pretty unhappy with the Buddhist tradition. For the most part, there were some that converted, some that agreed with it, but for the most part, they kind of didn't like it. And so for a Brahmin to be assigned to do this and not Ananda, not Mahakashapa, not any of those people is, is a fascinating choice. We don't get any reasoning for why it was Dona that was chosen to divide them and not anybody else. But ultimately, like I said, Dona makes out like a thief and... He gets the urn. Exactly. And there's partitioning of ashes that, like I said before, were kind of apparently not there, right? Yeah, I was I was going to ask about that. There is the one clan who comes in and asks like gets into the relic claiming part late and is given ashes instead of bones, but I thought earlier when it was talking about his cremation that the Buddha didn't leave any ashes except his bones. Yeah, so what we think they may have gotten is the ashes of the fabrics. Oh, right. That makes sense. I would expect that's not as valuable, but also, like, anything is better than nothing, I suspect. Yeah, I think that anything is indeed better than nothing, and I also think it might be because they got there late, and I think that it might also... It might have to do with just, like, Maybe the people who are writing all this down, who are living centuries after the Buddha has died, they look around and they see there's X number of stupas that claim to have relics of the Buddha. So when they're writing about this, they have to dig into their own memory, into their own oral tradition, and also into their own present social reality and make sense of all of it. 
And so the way that they must do that, I suppose, is by saying, okay, there must have just been more remains than there are with a normal person. And that's totally fine because the Buddha is not a normal person. However, it doesn't really hold up to historical scrutiny necessarily, we don't think. Maybe indeed he did have more remains than the average normal person, but we just can't know that. And we can't suspect that because we haven't seen in modern recorded history anybody have more remains than they had body to begin with, right? No one who weighs 180 pounds gets cremated and leaves behind 240 pounds of remains. It just doesn't work. So that being the case, there's suspicion about how these things were all partitioned and who got what. And like I said, there's the extra layer of political intrigue and all of these kind of warring factions that are arguing and stuff like that. So it's chaos. It's just pretty much pure chaos who gets what and where it goes. Yeah, it feels like the Buddha himself would probably not be happy with that part. But also, at that part, he's dead and gone. So, yeah, some of this feels a bit like, you know, having attempted to read the Bible in the past, there's that one chapter that's just name, begotten name, begotten name, begotten name. It feels like some of that is happening here, where, you know, people are, like, names are being brought up specifically to bring up those names. Yeah, I mean, how prestigious would it be to have a last name or to be a part of a clan that is mentioned in the Maha Parinibbana Sutta. You know, yeah. I mean, that's significant. And I think that that's part of the function of what's going on here. I agree that it's kind of like the Bible where, you know, if you're named in the Bible, that's big time. There's also, you know, naming all the ships in, you know, the Iliad or whichever. It's been years since I've done anything Greek, but I do remember that one chapter that's just all the ships that are going to be going to the Trojan War, like that kind of thing, too. And the same is true also whenever we see lists of audience members. There were, you know, these hundreds of bodhisattvas that are all named. There's these hundreds of lay people. There's these hundreds of Pracheka Buddhas, these Arhats, there's everybody else in attendance, right? So these lists are very important in suttas as well. All right. That looks like that brings us to the end of the text. So are there any points that I missed that you'd like to go over? No, I don't think so. I think that if we do have the time now, it might be good to take just a minute and say some final impressions about the whole thing. And you know, what we think after having read it. Yeah. So one thing I'll put is that at the beginning of this, when Mara is tempting the Buddha saying, hey, you're done, you can go now. And the Buddha goes, no, I'm not. There's a little bit more to do still. I was very curious what would be the switch between it's I'm not ready yet and now I'm ready. And it seems like it was mostly the giving time to add the ritual aspect to his death, as well as describe his wish for his remains, and then more emphasis on impermanence, which makes sense because impermanence seems to be the bit of his teachings that are most missed by the participants in this sutta. Like, Impermanence is a very, you know, foundational thing, and 
he's having to repeat over and over again, hey, impermanence implies to me too. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I'm glad that you brought up this question of like, when does the switch flip? And he says, okay, now it's okay for me to go. I think that on the one hand, some interpretations are that the Buddha said to Mara, I'm not going to go because you said to, I know when I'm going to go and it's just simply not now, right? He says, I'm, I'm on mission and I just know that it's not today, it's three months from now. Okay, so it's not so much about the Sangha being not ready as more of a, hey, it's just not time yet. Well, that's one interpretation. Also, you'll remember in the text that everybody, Shariputra and Ananda and others, say that you can prolong your life and stay here longer. You're powerful enough that you can do that. And that leads other interpreters to think that there is a switch that flips, where he says, okay, I've decided to stop, right? I've decided now. Instead of thinking to himself, I have three months and that's it, he thinks to himself, I will choose to be gone in three months, not yet, not today. And so the question then is, like you say, what was the what was the final thing? And a lot of people agree with what you were saying, that it's this issue of impermanence and setting up the rituals and setting up his funerary requests. There are, there are also some others that say that it has to do with something about Ananda. There's some that say that there is a moment where Ananda reaches a certain level of realization or he reaches a certain level of advancement. And at that point, that's when the Buddha says he can die, right? And in that regard, some have argued that Ananda is kind of the cause or the reason for the Buddha dying throughout this whole story. And I think that that's a very fascinating tradition of interpretation that I encourage all of you to go out and look for because that's a pretty prevalent one. And it's very fascinating how they make the argument that Ananda is the one driving the plot and not the Buddha. I kind of see it, though, because a lot of what the Buddha is doing is responding to Ananda. Exactly. Yeah, I see where they're coming from from that. That makes some sense. Yeah. The other side, though, the impermanence side and the practical side is very much how scholars interpret it, right? So, of course, they give space and they give attention to the fact that Ananda is afforded a lot of importance by interpreters within the tradition. But looking on the outside of the tradition, they think that the typical Buddhist funeral was becoming standardized at the time that this was written, and that the writing of this text did a lot of the like labor for standardizing it in the culture where it was circulated. And so in that regard, they also think that the funeral and ritual stuff was dealt with in the writing and not actually in the life of the Buddha so that they could actually standardize the tradition. Because some argue that it's very likely that during Shakyamuni's life, whenever he was dying, right, if he was actually a real person, if we take that for granted, and he had these followers, Kashapa, Ananda, Shariputra, whoever else, so there's some people who think that that was all being figured out on the fly. The Buddha is dying and people are arguing about how they should do his funeral and maybe he's not saying much or maybe he's being vague and cryptic or maybe he's too ill to speak. Maybe he's too ill to actually tell them, right? And so maybe some people think what happened is that the funeral that happened is kind of close to the one that got standardized and thus afforded to the level of Buddha Vachana, the words of the Buddha himself. So 
they think that it's kind of a post hoc deal having to do with like everything after the fact a posteriori they say in latin after the fact they kind of took what happened and elevated it to a level of being deliberate being on purpose being the real deal but whenever the buddha was actually dying his disciples might have been arguing they might have been figuring all this out they might have been applying certain brahmanical traditional death rituals and adapting them and it might have just been a complete mess and you know that's kind of realistic i mean if anybody yeah. has had like a family member who is dying you know not somebody who dies suddenly because that's its own very own version of chaos but someone who's dying slowly and the family is trying to figure out what do you do i mean that can be a lot of chaos especially if the person is too ill to weigh in themselves so i think that that's kind of a realistic reading of what's going on here and we don't have a lot of evidence to substantiate that but we never will and i think that it's just kind of a prevailing speculation at best and nobody claims that it's historical fact but they do say like we have reason to speculate that this might have been the case and i can see it i can too what else is there to say i think that the most appropriate final remarks for a discussion on the mahaparinibbana sutta would probably be all compounded things are prone to passing away strive with earnestness